Greetings and welcome to an update, because I'm going to be spending the month of August traveling around Alberta, visiting historical sites, uh, rural historical sites, and making podcast episodes and YouTube videos. I was awarded a grant from the government to do so, and I'm really looking forward to it, but it also means a lot of work and I would have to rush to get episodes done, and I don't want to do that because I like putting out good quality content. So I'm going to be uh, doing that, but there will be episodes coming throughout the month of August, but they're going to be my, my best of episodes from Canadian History X. So these are going to be episodes like my Terry Fox episode, my uh, episode on Mr. Dress Up, uh, maybe the Beachcombers, just episodes that I feel are really good and uh, probably my best episodes. And uh, then at the end of August, I will be back with regular episodes. We'll be getting right back to it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, but if you like, you can follow me along on my journey. Just follow me on Instagram, Bairdo37. You can follow me on Twitter, Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G, B-A-I-R-D. And uh, you can also email me if you have any questions or you just want to mention a cool place that I should visit in Alberta. Just email me at craig at canadaehx.com. And like I said, I'll be back at the end of August with brand new episodes and we'll be going strong throughout the winter with regular episodes, no more breaks, and it's going to be really great. So I do appreciate all of you guys who are listening and enjoy the shows and uh, keep enjoying them and enjoy these best of episodes. All right, well, enjoy the summer and enjoy your August. I'll be back at the end of the month. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you want to support the podcast, you can by going to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. Every dollar you give helps keep the podcast going. It is something that Canadians take a great deal of pride in. Our universal healthcare system ensures that no one ends up losing everything because they can't afford to pay for their medical care. It may not be a perfect system, but it's better than a lot of people have. Today on the podcast, I want to look at the road towards Medicare and how we got there. When Canada became a country in 1867, Healthcare was not organized on a national basis. Communities set up their own health boards, and often these were set up in response to epidemics of cholera, smallpox, or typhoid fever. The first formal legislation that gave communities the power to create their boards was passed by Upper Canada in 1834. A half century later in the 1880s, the new Public Health Act would be passed to enforce local governments to impose proper sanitation and organize health boards. The first provincial board of health would be established in Ontario in 1882. This health board would go into force in 1885 when smallpox hit Quebec, and Ontario put doctors on trains coming into the province and gave them the power to arrest anyone coming in who refused to be vaccinated. The first bits of health insurance would start to appear in Europe in the 1880s, but by the First World War, changes were coming. In Saskatchewan, a plan was created that allowed municipalities to tax their residents to build hospitals, bring in doctors, and pay for hospital care. As we'll see through this whole episode, Saskatchewan has very much led the way. The federal Liberal Party would look at the health plan as part of its election campaign, but that was where it ended. During the war, most of the government formed into a united party to deal with the war effort. But to get this support, Prime Minister Robert Borden had to work with Wilfrid Laurier, and that meant creating things like a federal health department. That department was also formed, in 1919, as a way to deal with the deadly Spanish flu. At the same time, with so many injured and disabled veterans, 
the federal government would help 160,000 injured and disabled servicemen by creating the Department of Soldiers Civil Reestablishment in 1917. This had training facilities for amputees and also treated cases of tuberculosis. This was the first time the federal government was funding health services for Canadians, who could traditionally have been able to pay for their own care. Throughout the 1920s, various things would come into play that would help form the initial steps towards universal health care. Union hospitals began to appear in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Alberta would have 11 union hospitals in place by 1922, and these hospitals typically charged one cent per acre to homesteaders, or $1.60 in total a year, to provide medical care. Saskatchewan would have 30 established by 1930, providing the same type of service and for the same cost. While the 1920s were a heyday for many, there were still many poor people, and charitable organizations encouraged doctors to work for free for the poor. In order to compensate for the lost income, the doctors charged different rates depending on how much a person made, and this allowed the middle class and wealthy to support the medical needs of the poor. This was shown in a notice in the Calgary Herald that stated by a vote of 6 to 5, the city of Calgary would implement different pay for different patients. City patients would pay $2 per day, maternity was free, and country patients paid $3. For semi-private rooms, it was $3 per day for city patients, and country patients paid $4. For the private ward, it was $5.50 for city patients, and $6 for country patients. The problem was that the population grew, and new diagnostic methods had come in, including x-rays, and many did not go to the hospital for fear of the medical debt. In a speech to the 1929 Medical Services Conference, Dr. Kenneth McKenzie would outline what would one day be a universal health care system. He would say, Now the poor man gets this service for nothing. On the other hand, the rich man is well able to pay for it at market price. But about 60% of our population, I should say, belongs to a class whose earning powers are small, and in order to balance their budget they cannot afford those expensive forms of diagnosis and treatment. They are too proud to accept them for nothing, and they are intelligent enough to want to get the best that medical science can offer. Now, if there was an evil, there must be a remedy, and that remedy, as I see it, must be a form of distribution of cost among all people at large. The Great Depression would have a major impact on Canada, and the experience of so many Canadians being in challenging financial situations would shape leaders in the coming decades. During the Depression, Provinces and local governments would provide relief payments for food, shelter, clothing, and provinces would also incorporate medical costs into the provincial budget. With the cost of living falling by 25% and incomes falling by 36% between 1928 and 1933, how people paid for things changed heavily. One doctor in rural Ontario said he was paid 20 chickens, several ducks, potatoes, wood, a turkey, and geese for his services. In 1933, a lack of money in Winnipeg resulted in the municipal government being unable to pay for the medical services for the poor. Doctors saw their incomes decline, and they resented the city government for being unable to pay the amount for service they had promised. In March, the first doctor's strike in Canadian history would result, and it would last seven months. And when it ended, the Greater Winnipeg Relief Plan had been created, and until 1965, it would provide payments for doctors who treated the poor. The same year as that strike, 
the Ontario government offered to subsidize medical costs to 50%, to a maximum of $100 per month per doctor. While doctors were unhappy with the state intervention in the doctor-patient relationship, and this will come up again, they were desperate enough to support it. As a result, the Ontario Medical Association began to support the idea of a province-wide health insurance, but a changing government came, and any progress towards that ended in 1934 with the election of the new ruling party of the province, the Liberals. In Alberta, the United Farmers of Alberta government passed the Alberta Health Insurance Act in 1935. But before it could be implemented, the government was defeated and the Social Credit Party of Alberta came in. In Saskatchewan, despite the practice of communities coming together to pay for doctor services throughout the 1920s, this was not happening in the 1930s. It was estimated that 130 doctors in the hard-hit areas of Saskatchewan were making an average of $27 per month. That would be about $515 today. In order to keep doctors in the province, the government paid them $75 per month for the next five years. By 1937, 66% of the population of Saskatchewan was living on relief payments of only $20 for a family of five. Even with the province paying doctors, the doctor-to-patient ratio fell from one doctor for every 1,579 people in 1931 to one doctor for every 1,700 people in 1940. Matt Anderson, a Norwegian immigrant in Regina, went around to gain support from doctors for a municipal health insurance plan funded through individual and family premiums. In 1938, he was able to present his measure to colleagues at various councils, and votes saw 80% of residents in those communities were in favour of this system. In 1939, Anderson convinced the provincial government to introduce the Municipal, Medical and Hospital Services Act, which passed. Now after a decade of lean financial years, and then six years of war, and despite not having funding for it from the federal government, Saskatchewan proceeded with provincial health insurance. Even with some programs in place, there was still no universal health care. One woman would relate the following story that showed how much needed to change with medical services. Her daughter was badly burned in October of 1943 after a shopkeeper started burning trash. She would say, She was rushed to the hospital by a car we stopped in the street. The hospital wouldn't admit her until we paid $35. We didn't have the money. We had to go to the old civic office and get a paper saying we would pay later. She was in the hospital for 14 months. We had a wonderful doctor who saved her, Dr. Charles Burns. He lowered his fees by half, and it took us years to pay off the hospital and doctor bills. Thankfully, change was coming. As with anything to do with universal health care, it begins in Saskatchewan and with a man by the name of Tommy Douglas. It was under Tommy Douglas, Premier of Saskatchewan and leader of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, that public hospital care was implemented in 1947. Tommy Douglas had become Premier of Saskatchewan on July 10, 1944, bringing into power the first democratic socialist government in North America. As a young man in Winnipeg, he had been witness to the Winnipeg General Strike, something I did an episode on earlier. From a rooftop on Main Street, he saw police charge towards strikers with clubs and guns, and he saw a streetcar turned over and lit on fire. Seeing this unrest would have a huge impact on Douglas, who would see it as a reason to provide fundamental freedoms to people, and he would take that philosophy to the highest office in the province of Saskatchewan. 
All levels within Saskatchewan work together to help make this happen. Local governments work to create a union hospital system and municipal hospital care plans, and the provincial government follows suit with a bill respecting health insurance. In an unusual move, Premier Tommy Douglas also made himself the health minister to help get this health care legislation put through. With Saskatchewan implementing what it was calling the Saskatchewan Hospital Services Plan, other provinces were quick to follow in the footsteps of the Prairie Province. British Columbia would implement its own service in 1948. Now under the Saskatchewan plan, 900 municipalities enrolled all their citizens in the plan, and each year at tax time, an annual premium was collected and the hospital services card for an individual or family would be updated. By 1954, 810,000 people in Saskatchewan were under the plan. Alberta would follow Saskatchewan and British Columbia under its Social Credit Party and Premier Ernest Manning to create subsidized health care in its provincial borders. In Alberta, by 1954, 650,000 people were covered by the hospital plan. With these three provinces, it was shown that the services could be successful, and with disparities between provincial health coverage, discussions began with the goal of looking at a federal program. At the time, 50% of Canadians were covered by voluntary private or non-profit prepayment plans. But public pressure was growing, and the country needed to move towards universal health care. Over several years, which would include debate among stakeholders, doctors, provincial governments, and the federal government, a plan would come forward. The federal government would make an offer to fund about 50% of the national cost of diagnostic services and inpatient hospital care for provinces. British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and Newfoundland would accept this proposal. In 1949, a Gallup poll found that 80% said yes, they would support government-funded health plans, while only 16% said no. Now one problem was the rise of the Cold War, and the fact that many saw any sort of public health care as socialism or communism. Paul Martin, the Minister of National Health and Welfare from 1946 to 1957, would say after being criticized for his support for hospital insurance, the following. Hospital insurance is not socialism, nor is it a socialistic device or concept, nor does it have any essential relationship with a socialist philosophy. Movement towards a national health care program would come with the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act, which was passed by the Liberal government of Louis St. Laurent on May 1, 1957, and it was the first formal legislation nationwide to the increasing pressure of having a national agreement. Under this plan, each province had to establish a hospital planning division, license, inspect, and supervise hospitals, and approve hospital budgets, and collect statistics and required reports. The Conservatives would come into power in June of 1957, and under Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, they had to implement the Act and negotiate with the provinces. On July 1, 1958, Newfoundland, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia all received federal payments since they had insurance programs that met the federal requirements. On January 1, 1959, Ontario joined the program with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Prince Edward Island would join on October 1, 1959, followed by Quebec on January 1, 1961. In 1960, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker would appoint Supreme Court Justice Emmett Hall to be the chair of the Royal Commission on Health Services. 
In a two-volume report published in the mid-1960s, he would recommend Medicare for All. Emmett Hall would have this to say about Medicare. Find out just what the Hall Commission did recommend. Our reporter talked to the affable chairman, Supreme Court Justice Emmett Hall. Mr. Hall, why is universal health care important? From the humanitarian standpoint, there is, we believe, an obligation on society to be concerned with the health of its individuals. But on the economic side, investments in health are investments in human capital, just as investments in engines and uh, railroads are investments in capital, so are investments in health. And they pay off in the economic uh, field, and they pay great dividends to a nation that looks after the health of its people. So what we say is that, uh, uh, that society has an obligation to assist the individual to accomplish that which he, by his own efforts, cannot attain. Within four years, nearly all Canadians, an estimated 99%, would be entitled to hospital care benefits, which provided protection from large hospital bills. The Act was not perfect, though. For one, it did not cover medical services, which made up 40% of national health care costs. There was also resistance to universal health care. In 1962 in Saskatchewan, doctors opposed the decision of the Douglas government to require doctors to collect their fees solely from the government medical plan. In protest, 90% of the doctors closed their offices on July 1st. The Saskatchewan doctors' strike came about because of the Saskatchewan Medical Care Insurance Bill, which was introduced on October 13, 1961. Douglas had announced his intention in 1959 to provide medical care insurance, based on prepayment, universal coverage, and quality service. The 1960 election was entirely based on this issue, and the day that the act came into force was the same day the doctors went on strike. This clip is from the start of the strike, showing the wide divide between the province and the doctors. Well, let's listen to the spokesman on behalf of the doctors, a Dr. Anderson, who has come here from Saskatoon, to present the College of Physicians and Surgeons side of the story. The nature of this dispute is really quite a simple one. The Act has created a government monopoly in health matters, with written in controls over all aspects of doctor's services. You and I, doctor and patient, will lose our rights in health matters once we accept such conscription. This we cannot do. The Honorable J.H. Brucklebank, the Deputy Premier of the province of Saskatchewan, is now presenting the government's case. In speaking to him before the meeting, he told me that the Medicare issue has been the most contentious issue which he's ever had to champion during his many years in politics. But in this democratic country, there is a proper time and method to get rid of governments we do not like, and we have done it often, and you'll probably do it again. Anyway, we'll have a good round when the day comes up. But to punish the people of this province by withdrawal of medical services is not what the people of the province deserve. It was a hot night in Wattress. The chairs were hard and the hall was stuffy. But 
perhaps an indication of the concern being shown by the citizens of Saskatchewan in the current situation is the fact that although the meeting has been going on for almost five hours now, I haven't seen a single person leave. The doctors felt that it would interfere with the doctor-patient relationship, and there was some support for doctors in the province as well. In Regina, a group of mothers formed a committee to support the doctors, and several other committees formed throughout the province. They called themselves Keep Our Doctors, and they organized a campaign against the government. With so many doctors either closing their offices or leaving the province, the Medical Care Insurance Commission had to bring doctors from other parts of Canada, Britain, and the United States to fill the gaps left. In many communities, citizen groups would organize medical clinics and hire doctors to attend to them. Within two weeks of going on strike, the support for the Keep Our Doctors committees was beginning to lag. Lord Taylor, the man who had been active in getting Britain its healthcare system, came to Saskatchewan to serve as a mediator between the doctors and the government. An agreement would be signed on July 23, 1962. A few weeks later, on August 2nd, the act was amended to allow doctors to practice outside the plan and payments by the government would be 85% of the college fee schedule. As well, the number of doctors on the Medical Care Insurance Commission would be increased by three. Doctors soon returned to work, but the bad feelings between the patients and doctors and doctors and the government would remain for years. At the end of the strike, citizens were divided on whether or not universal health care was a good idea as this clip from the news shows. I'm very happy, mostly because I think that every person in Saskatchewan tonight will be very happy to know that they have a comprehensive medical care plan and that they will no longer be worried about whether or not their medical bills will be paid. I think so, too much of uh, communism in it. In the solution, sir? That's right. Pretty soon, I mean, even our salesmen will be just like the doctors. Everything we make, they'll want to... Uh, you know, control us just like they have been doing to the doctors. Very glad it's solved. Uh, glad to see that both of them use a little common sense instead of butting their heads together. Well, I'll tell you, I'm from Manitoba, and I, when I heard it was settled, I felt real good for the people of Saskatchewan. How do you feel about such a plan in your province? I wish it would come in our province, too. Well, I'm very happy about it, as I'm sure everyone is, and uh, people that have families especially, I think are very happy about it because uh, it's rather frightening to think that you can't get a doctor if something's wrong with your children. And I think it was all right the way it was. I don't know why the doctors have to argue. Well, personally, I'm not too happy about it. I'm uh, rather disappointed in the doctors. Myself, I'm a medical student, you see, and I hope they'd, uh, they'd fight it to the end, and I was kind of hoping the government backed down. First, I mean, dead set against socialism. Are you going to stay in Saskatchewan? Uh, after I graduate, I intend to get out as fast as I can. Now, by this point, Tommy Douglas had entered into federal politics as the leader of the new Democrat Party, and he would talk about the need for universal health care. There are, of course, in uh, North America, a substantial variety of uh, opportunities to put money away for the rainy day, as far as health care is concerned. Why is it your position that government does it best? Well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, the first would be that all of the health plans, which are a very satisfactory uh, second alternative if you haven't got a government-sponsored plan, 
But the basic weakness is that they levy a premium uh, which is the same, uh, irrespective of whether the family has an income of $2,000 a year or $20,000 a year. In other words, no private plan can take cognizance of the family's ability to pay. Only a government can levy taxes on that basis. Uh, another basic weakness is that most of these plans, in order to stay solvent, uh, have to eliminate uh, a great many groups of people uh, because of age, because of uh, chronic conditions, because of congenital illnesses, uh, past medical histories, and so on. And these are precisely the people who need some kind of protection. In 1965, at the Federal Provincial Conference, the decision to move towards Medicare was made. On July 1, 1967, the 100th anniversary of Confederation, the Liberals under Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson introduced the Medical Care Act, which covered 50% of the cost of a physician outside the hospital. When Medicare became law, and while it would be five years before all provinces signed on, it was big news in Canada. It was in this legislature that the mechanics of North America's only compulsory government-operated medical care scheme were worked out between 1960 and 1962. The former CCF administration in Saskatchewan did not have an easy time of it, particularly during the famous 23-day doctor's strike in July 1962, but the plan is now an integral part of the province's health legislation. Everyone in the province is covered under Medicare and hospitalization at $72 a year for families and $36 for single people. The plan here is considered a model for all others because even though it is admittedly compulsory, no one has come up with an alternative which gives such complete protection for such inexpensive premiums. Ross Thatcher, in spite of his stiff opposition to the plan before he took over as premier in 1964, has not altered it in any way, but he is concerned about rising costs. The estimated cost of Medicare this year is about $27 million, and it's expected the total will go up by about 5% every year from now on. Premiums are not meeting the costs of the plan, and Mr. Thatcher says he'll have to find ways of getting more money to ensure that Medicare stays healthy. But in spite of this and one or two other minor problems, Medicare is here to stay in Saskatchewan. Certainly the people like it, the doctors have accepted it, and right now it's the best program on the continent. The Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act and the Medical Care Act would provide hospital and physician services to all Canadians, no matter their ability to pay, rich or poor. Now changes would come to Canada's universal health care plan over the years. Some would support the program, some would not, but its importance cannot be understated. In 1980, Emmett Hall would do another review of Canada's health care system and say that despite its problems, by world standards, it was one of the very best health services today. As for Tommy Douglas, the man who helped start it all, Canadians' love of universal health care can be shown in the fact that when it came time to pick the greatest Canadian in history, Douglas won beating out some luminaries like Terry Fox, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and Sir Frederick Banting. And today, there's probably not a person listening in Canada who hasn't been able to take advantage of our universal health care plan. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Canadian Museum of History, Wikipedia, and CBC. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadax.com, and you can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history on my website. Just go to CanadaX.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.